Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting first on WPVM LP Asheville 103.7, streaming online WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. I'd like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song. Thank you ever so much, Walter Parks, for all the good work you do. If you're interested in hearing Walter's music, WalterParks.com is a great place to, to start. And if you're interested in reaching out to me, JamesNave.com, that's my website. You can always email me through that website. And if you're interested in ever joining me on Saturday morning, I host a a, a writer's group on Saturday morning. We call it the Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week. And you can find the link at imaginativestorm.com if you'd like to come for an hour on, on Saturday morning, noon Eastern times. We'd love to have you, imaginativestorm.com. And thank you, Devine Dial, for all the good work you do at WPVM. We really appreciate you holding that our radio station together. It's a wonderful thing. And thank you. Thank you so much for doing that. So many of you listening to this show, you know that I've had lots and lots of opportunities to interview poets. I am a poet myself and have always enjoyed the poetic world. I do all kinds of other interviews as well, but poetry somehow seems to be the thing I come back to most. And sometimes I will interview poets I've, I've never met before, maybe except on Zoom. And other times I will interview people I've known for a long time. My guest today is a fellow I've known since I think in the mid eighties when he came to a poetry festival in Asheville and his name is Greg Pallast. And Greg wears a number of hats. He's a, he's a writer, he's a journalist, he reports the news and he's a poet. So tell us what you've been up to. The last time that we spoke, you had just finished writing another book and you have always been doing investigative journalism. And mm -hmm. that's, I, I would suppose we could say it's your day job. And then yeah. your, your full-time job is being a poet, because when one becomes a poet, that takes up 24 hours a day, no matter what you're up to. So yes, tell us a bit about what's, what's up and how you've been doing and what kind of work you've been working on. And, and then let's skedaddle right to some poetic conversation. How's okay. that sound? Okay, I'm sure Aristotle will be happy. For those of you who don't know Greg Pallast, or maybe you do, yeah, that's the guy that you see on like programs like Democracy Now. And I was a BBC television investigative reporter in the Guardian newspapers, Rolling Stone at newspapers, Rolling Stone, etc. Written a string of New York Times bestsellers. I have my very public side, which is investigative reporting and TV, etc. And then my other side, versification. This is a good question. Is my poetry something else other than investigative reporting? I think of myself as an investigative poet. But I just returned from Georgia, where I found this woman, Pam Reardon, GOP official. She had challenged 32,000 voters, names like Kim and Garcia and Johnson. She challenged 32,000 voters, said that they didn't live in Georgia. This is under New Georgia law. And so I decided to go find the uh, voters who had left Georgia, these skanky illegal voters, of course, almost all voters of color. But there they were, her neighbors, <laughs> right down the street. Well, way down the street, I should say. She lived in what looked like a Gone with the Wind mansion. She was all dressed up in a red outfit, like Nancy Reagan, high heels, because she thought I was interviewing her about running for vice chair of the Georgia Republican Party. I asked her about her challenges uh, to all these voters. Yes, she was going after the illegal voters. And I said, 
you said these people don't live in Georgia. Have you called them? No. I said, oh, written to them? No. Ever gone to their houses to see if they're still there? <laughs> they're still here? No. I said, well, I have. I called 800 of them. They're still in Georgia. They're right down the street from you. And I said, would you like to speak to one of the voters that you knocked off the voter rolls? Uh, he's on the phone right now. Now, the thing is, when I walked in, there was a shotgun next to the door. Ammo boxes loaded up on the table between us, several handguns. So when I confronted her, she starts swearing like a sailor. And her husband, who's in his 70s, ran out and grabbed me. But given the weaponry, I wasn't going to disagree with it. But this is the new game that's going on. She's one of a group of 88 Republican operatives who are going after voters of color. So this is the fun I have. This is the type of thing I do. And you won't see it on US TV. That's why I report for BBC or Rolling Stone or, or other places, because as Rachel Maddow said when she refused to run the, the tape, it's to Greg Palast, and that it is. So that's what I've been doing politically. So when you do this work and you go to Georgia and you're wandering around Atlanta and you're finding all these people and you're discovering what many of us, we at least suspect, and then you prove it. You knock on the door and the people open the door and the voters who do not live in Georgia are indeed living there in Georgia. So when you're doing all this work and you're reporting on it, it what is it about poetry? Why, why is that important to you? Well, here's where I came from. I come from the anus of Los Angeles, literally. It's in Sun Valley, Pacoima. We have the sewage plant there. We have the garbage plant there. We had the coal-fired power plants, if you can imagine that. As an investigative reporter, I often say, I, I took the job because I want to find out the, the billionaire that did this to us. But before that, I needed an escape, a soul escape. And I was assigned to write about a poet called William Carlos Williams. I uh, had to do a book report like in the ninth grade because he'd won the Pulitzer Prize. So I had to write this report, but I actually never read his poetry. I couldn't find his poetry in the, in the, in the library, just books about him or writings about him. And finally, one night uh, I was in Palm Springs with a friend of mine, I was 13 years old, and we had our own uh, room. His parents are trying to restore their marriage. That failed. But while they're trying to restore their marriage unsuccessfully, we successfully snuck across the desert to a 24-hour bookstore where I actually found William Carlos Williams' poetry, and I was knocked out, and I immediately just started writing my own. It was my way the hell out of the sewage dump. Not because I had higher thoughts, but in fact, whatever. I mean, I could write about the sewage. I could write about, you know, you were free. He was a pediatrician, and one of the babies he delivered was, was Allen Ginsberg. He, he was actually Allen Ginsberg's pediatrician. Uh, that's how Ginsberg became a poet, because Williams nurtured his career and sent his stuff to Ezra Pound, who hated it, and told Williams, never send me crap like this again from Allen Ginsberg, but it inspired Ginsberg. <laughs> <laughs> and so I started reading out this guy, Allen Ginsberg. And later, um, I was a student of Allen Ginsberg. Here's a guy saying, I see the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness. And that's what I saw. I grew up in Loserville. And we're meant to be losers. We were meant to go to Vietnam. And if we didn't get our legs shut off, come back and go work at the Chevy plant or the Lockheed building fighter jets. And my classmate, I was palaced sitting next to me. It was a guy named Paddock. Palace and Paddock. And Steve Paddock is the most famous graduate of my high school. He's the guy who killed 56 people in Las Vegas and then shot himself. So he was my 
close acquaintance for a decade. He didn't find a way out. He was a genius. That's one of the problems. Steve Paddock, the Vegas shooter, was a genius. He was the one who fired into the big crowd of people at the concert. Is that correct? That's right. And he was quite brilliant because he was so good at math. He was able to figure the complex calculus of the ballistics to maximize the killing. He was a, um, a chess whiz when I was a kid. And I'm actually thinking of doing an epic poem about me and Steve called the uh, L.A. Book of the Dead. What do you think, Navi? Well, I think of the L.A. Book of the Dead about you and Steve would be interesting because what comes to mind when you mention that, of course, I'm at a distance from it because I read it on the news. I have no idea who Steve was. All I know is what I saw on the, on the screens. And yet when I think about Steve and personalize him as a friend of yours and definitely a horrible act that he finally found himself performing my thought went to him as the individual holding all of the guilt of his act. And yet the culture that drove him to that final moment when he did such a horrible thing, that culture you came from beside the, the auto plant and the fighter jet plant and the oil refineries and how sad it is that someone who had all of that genius ended up in such a, a horrible, horrible moment for so many people, hundreds and hundreds of people. How will you work with that poetically? Because that's a challenging proposition to dance with. Here's how I dealt with it. As soon as Steve slaughtered all these people, and, and by the way, I'm not sympathetic. You know, I mean, I'm glad he killed himself. He should have done it before he killed the others. Um, it's just that cold. We went to a place called Poly High. It was also the city's dump, where they dumped mostly Chicanos, but also Steve's dad was a bank robber, escaped from prison, so after a while he couldn't see his dad. Single mom, a tough time in the, in the 50s and 60s to be a single mom. And again, living under the, the stacks of the coal plant on San Fernando Road. The school was supposed to be one of these new advances in education because they knew that kids like me and Steve were never going to go to college. And so the best thing, they would teach us a skill. So we were required to take drafting and electric shop and wood shop and metal shop. Those are required subjects. We didn't have advanced placement French. We didn't have calculus. We didn't have any of those things. He learned that stuff all on his own. Uh, we were supposed to go to Vietnam and then come back and work at Lockheed, which he did as a draftsman and engineer because he was so bright. And he should have been at Stanford. He should have been at Yale with his math genius. But instead, he went to San Fernando College got his job. And then, of course, Lockheed was shut down, as was the, the GM plant, which was sent to Mexico after NAFTA. And I just did a film with Shailene Woodley where I had her go out to my old house. It's a film called The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. You can download it for free at gregpalace.com. Shailene Woodley and I go back to my old spot. She's like a spirit that takes me back. But there you see all the guys who had worked at the GM plant and they had their campers because they used to have paid month-long vacations after 20 years. And now they're living in their campers along the tracks. You can't say they're homeless, but you call that a home. That's what happened. And I escaped. I escaped. I literally talked my way into top schools. But Steve fell down the hole that was dug for him. He didn't get out. Everyone's saying, why did he do this? Why did he do this? Why did he do this? I said, I know why he did this. I knew Steve and I know why he did it. 
and why I did it. Sun Valley Pacoima is like North Hollywood. Your face is pressed against the glass watching other people eat a steak while they're feeding you dog food. And you get angry. You get real angry, as I did. But our mind turned into funny poems and crazy investigations and televisions and film. I just worked it and got out. And what I wrote was that there was just an inch of difference that could have led me down Steve's path. And I had a damn editor refuse to publish my story because he said no one would ever believe that an internationally famous investigative reporter was going to end up on a hotel room window murdering 56 people. It's just that little bit of difference. It's that little bit of luck that got me out. Hunter Thompson's phrase, I fell down an elevator shaft and landed on a pile of mermaids. Uh, Steve didn't. And I have to write about it. And I've been writing about it. And I, I think that everything I've ever done is writing about it. In fact, I end my book, Vulture's Picnic, with saying, what happened to these people? And ironically, I say, maybe they ended up in Las Vegas. Yeah, it's real close. And that's what motivates me. You were able to get out. Steve wasn't. What was it that got you out? Or what was it that moved you in the direction of getting away from the kind of fate that Steve suffered so horribly? Was it a moment in time? Was it some kind of awareness? I could give you some fancy explanation. Oh, you know, I discovered poetry and I had to become an intellectual. I was reading books. I mean, it's true. I was 11 years old reading Paradise Lost. And I found this writer in a Hollywood bookstore for 10 cents, this cool looking book. And it was a portrait of the artist as a young man. And so I thought I had discovered James Joyce and read Ulysses. Uh, and so I was, you know, an intellectual, but so was Steve. I'm going to tell you what happened, actually. It's, it's, it's an interesting story, and it says the whole damn thing. I was lucky, okay? Number one, I'm a Jewish kid, which is unusual for my area, which means that I can see that there's another world possible. So I actually could understand that, believe it or not, what people you saw on TV living better lives, I could be one of those. I knew that it was possible. I just had to figure out where the key was hidden, but I knew that there was a way out, okay? In fact, my great uncle was on the US Supreme Court and my other uncle was the head of the Writers Guild here in Hollywood. So while Steve is pressing his face against the glass, I'm feeling for the knobs to get out, okay? So I had a friend who was at Fairfax High, which is like Beverly Hills High, and they had a program. You took the battery of tests and you, they would let you into UCLA early, but they didn't even tell us kids in Loserville under the coal plant stacks that you could do this. I happened to be meeting my friend at UCLA. We we're gonna to go to the library. He says, well, I gotta take these tests because I can get into the school. And so I walked in, I said, can I take the test? Is this restricted? This was the 60s, so everything was like loosey-goosey. No, take the test. So it's only by those connections that others don't have and the knowledge that it's there. And so I took the tests. And by the way, I flunked one of the four tests. It was called the subject A exam. Now, you have to understand, you can't get into the University of California unless you pass this exam that says you know basic English, that you can spell and have grammar. And I flunked. I flunked it. But the dean of students at UCLA called up my principal and said, what the hell are you teaching kids in school? Tested his IQ. It's through the roof. We gave him the SAT without any practice. Perfect. It says, but then he's illiterate. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he said, don't you teach the English language? And my principal said, we're lucky if someone 
can understand English at all at this school. And so they said, well, we'll take a chance on this kid. I ended up named head of the Philosophical Society at Trinity College, position previously held by Jonathan Swift and Oscar Wilde. That's a kid who flunked basic English. Someone gave me a chance. Today, as they close off the exit, so that's what I always write about, about people whose exits have been not only cut off, but something else. They can't speak for themselves. And I really believe I've been put here on this earth to speak for those who can't speak for themselves. For the kids like Steve, buried alive. And that's all over the world. And that's a pretty strong statement for an atheist <laughs> about why I'm here. But I kind of have to acknowledge that. I was just thinking, like, for example, I was in the Amazon, way up the Amazon River, where uh, Chevron oils had just poisoned the Amazon. And I found a chief. And I go meet this chief. He speaks Spanish, and most of the natives don't. But the chief spoke Spanish so we could communicate. And he said, you know, my son, my three-year-old son went swimming in one of the watering holes here, which was shiny, and didn't realize that the shine meant that there was oil in that water, oil dumped by Chevron, oil waste. He came up coughing blood and dropped dead in his father's arms, and his other son died of leukemia. So I went with him to the jungle courtroom in Ecuador, in the middle of nowhere. He put on war paint, feathers, naked from the waist up. He was ready for battle and filed and had some people type up for him a lawsuit against Chevron for his son's death and for destroying the area. You know, they're laughing at this Indian dressed up like it's Halloween. Anyway, he won the suit, nine and a half billion dollar judgment. And because he had a guy, Steve Donziger, a lawyer in New York, who had graduated from Harvard with Obama, but instead of going out to cash in and make money, he decided to volunteer to work for these natives on their case. And he spent his life doing it. Right now, he's under house arrest in New York. Chevron found the judge to say that he had manipulated the case in Ecuador. This is completely insane. Well, he had refused to hand over to Chevron his computer and his cell phone because they'll find the names of whistleblowers. And in places like Ecuador and in South America, if you're on a list of whistleblowers, you're dead. The death squads will get you. He wasn't going to put these people in danger. So now he's facing six months in prison. Steve Donziger, go to my website, gregpalace.com, and get that story. So I'm speaking for Steve, but I'm more I'm speaking for Chief Criollo because he's there deep in the jungle. Now, I was able to get his story on the top of the BBC Nightly News. By the way, silenced here in America. No one would touch it. PBS NewsHour turned it down. And I said, well, wait a minute. It says that the main sponsor of the PBS NewsHour is Chevron Oil. Does that have something to do with not running this story? Again, I'm an atheist, so I don't know how this happened, but I was in a doctor's office and some guy, working class looking guy, brushed against me. And I thought, did he just pick my pocket and take my wallet? And I reach in to my pocket. My wallet, there's a piece of paper. And it said on the piece of paper, thank you for speaking for those of us who can't. So that's what I do. And I'm trying to do it with the poetry too, which is not, by the way, generally overtly political. What did Pound say? It's the news for which men die every day? Well, it's interesting. The fellow that slipped a note in your back pocket could have been an angel. And I mean that in all serious, on all serious levels. If you think about the whole wide expanse of the universe being available to us as one proposition, then the idea of 
God becomes much more understandable. I was thinking when you're saying talk about angels, I was thinking two things. One, I just pulled up an angel poem, but I was also thinking, which is kind of somewhat inspired by Rilke's line, a yater angel is schreckliche, which is every angel is terrifying. In Lorca's essay uh, on the theory and the play of the Duende, he talks about the angels and he, he says the angels fly overhead and they sometimes bless you and they're at a bit of a distance, an angelic distance. The muses will get into your heart and sometimes are the muses. They will drive you crazy and they don't cooperate with you. But the duende, the duende deep in your body that bubbles, bubbles below your belly button. It sounds like the river's roaring and itches the skin. That's where the art is. So I love the idea of the angels being at a distance, but the duende, that ooze that comes out of us as poets, I, I like the idea of the duende. If you don't mind, I'll, I'll do a little uh, versification. So Greg Palace will now read a poem about angels, I think. I don't know if you remember this. For a while, there was a craze of finding your angel. And people used to go to these angel classes. You go into these classes and you'd find your angel and you start out, but you say, I'm breathing in light and I'm breathing out doubt. And your angel's supposed to appear to you. So I said, you know, okay, I'll take all the help I can get. Cross-legged, I got my hands up. I'm breathing in light and I'm breathing out doubt. This poem is a kind of Benadryl for your ooze. I'm breathing in light and I'm breathing out doubt. I'm breathing in light and I'm breathing out doubt. And finally, my angel whispers in my ear, jerk, she says, jerk. I'm breathing in light, I say very loud, and I'm breathing out doubt, hoping someone will hear and I'll get a more encouraging angel. Jerk, she says. I'm immortal, she says. And jerk, she adds. I'm just gorgeous. I don't care. And I can't see you. And I don't care. I know I'm a jerk. I don't need a divine proclamation. Go away. What I don't know has filled several books of unpublished poetry. What I don't know, I'm talking. You should be breathing in light and breathing out doubt. I'm such a total failure. Even my guardian angel is a disaster. Don't they have to test angels for personality or bedside manner? Or I'm into enlightenment. I don't care about all your problems like those cheap movie angels who stop you from killing yourself on Christmas. Go ahead, kill yourself on Christmas. I think it would do you some good. My legs have fallen asleep under me and I can't get off the prayer rug. I tell myself I'm through with gimmicks. My soul will have to take care of itself. Get out of here, I shout. I didn't send for you. I asked for the devil. I want to sell my soul for a major publisher with a high-powered marketing plan. Then, whomp, she hits me hard on the kisser. I fall back on the prayer mat. Angels don't hit people. That's got to be a rule. Jerk, she says. Jerk, 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 she shouts. And it is a thousand voices and tears and anger. And before I can get off the floor and run the gossamer, feathers of light surround me, choke me, smother me, blind me, 
cut me and fill me with a storm of blackened verses, useless, unspeakable poems without endings, without explanations, without any way to form or shout for help or say their name. So that's my bad luck with angels. That is bad luck with angels. So read another one for us. This is not about my bad luck with angels. This is actually called Audition for Harvey Weinstein. Because I'm here in Hollywood, by the way. I made it up the hill from the pit of Sun Valley Pacoima. So now I can actually see where I grew up from here. People listening might not know if they don't live in L.A. what made it up the hill means. I think I know what it means. It's, it's it, physical. As I was doing a, a film with Rosario Dawson and we were talking about it. And I said, Pacoima Sun Valley is this trough. It literally is a trough. It's the most polluted place in California. It has the highest COVID rate in the nation. And But if you crawl out of that hill, financially, emotionally, artistically, now I'm up at the top of the hill in the Hollywood Hills, looking down above the smog. As I told Rosario, where I grew up from where I am now, I said, from where we're standing, I said, it is a 20 minute drive and 3000 miles. And that's what people don't understand when they watch a guy like Steve Paddock. By the way, my high school, we've had only uh, two mass killers born in Los Angeles, both graduated from my high school. It's not by accident, including the Santa Claus killer, the guy who dressed up like Santa Claus and killed himself and eight of his in-laws on Christmas Eve. Another way to get out of the trough, uh, a guy who in my school was expelled because he had ripped off a guy's face with his teeth. He was expelled, then he went to prison, and he came out, and a casting agent saw him and grabbed him. His name is Danny Trejo, who then went on to make the Machete films and stop biting people's face off, except on camera, and it's when it's fake. That's where I come from. But the other way to get out, is like Danny did, is an audition. Uh, by the way, Sun Valley, where I came, was the porn capital of the world. My girlfriend went to audition, not for porn film. Well, she thought not for the porn film. She went for an audition. So when Weinstein was arrested, I went back to what she told me happened at her audition. And so the first part of it is nonfiction. So this is audition for Harvey Weinstein. So stick with me on this. If you were on a desert island after a plane crash, you would do all of these horrible things. You would eat dead bodies. Now, why are we listening to this freak? because he is an employer and we are underemployed. Yes, you would. We will reveal it all, the whole dark hell of the human soul. We have the guts to film it and we want to know if you have the guts to play it. What he wants to know is, are we willing to play girl corpses sticking out of the sand? The other three girls are from Iowa. They played Sandy in the Lansing High School production of Grease. They have glossies, and they are listening to this brain-damaged tarantula, and I am listening to this brain-damaged tarantula. But I am 8,000 years old. Yes, I am. So when we step out into the California storm and hear him screaming back in his production office, my little sisters don't know that I have psychokinetically twisted his eyes back into his head. And as his sockets drip blood and mascara, he is looking straight into his own brain and he can't stop screaming. That's the kind of thing you can do when you're 8,000 years old. When you're 8,000 years old.
You can do all these things. But you can't get a job, can you? Unless you put your lips around the tarantula. I'll tell you what. I'll trade you your resume. Your resume for this information. One, kill Mrs. Schneider because she lied to you in the third grade. Two, kill Santa Claus because he lies to children every day. Richard Nixon told you the truth when he said evil is a full-time job. That's what he told me when I was much younger than you. That captures all this, this stuff that's going on for sure. Harvey Weinstein didn't invent the casting couch. Obviously, there's more. So in terms of the poetry you are writing, this piece that you just read, it's performative. It's almost like a monologue. It's constructed so that it takes us into the grit of life. And much of the work you do from underneath the smokestacks, there's a grit about it. Do you ever find any inclination to write in the direction of something that's softer? Or is that something you've ever thought about doing? And that's the other wonderful thing about poetry. Unlike the deadlines I have, you know, and I listen to some editor at Rolling Stone say, well, that's not our style. They don't like the topic I'm trying to sell them or something. But instead, I have plenty of room. So um, let's see. I think uh, I find something here. Uh, yeah, this is something I just did. Looks a little bit different. So what did I throw up tonight? I'd say about a half pound of chicken jalfrezi from the Indian diner, two pounds of regret, 140 pounds of uh, envy. An old man shouts in his sleep. Millions used to listen to him or at least felt the discomfort in their dreams disturbed by the shouting. Now, his young wife is listening to a podcast with those earphones in, but the cat pays attention. The next act is flexing his muscles in the green room, younger, with that wonderful arrogance of self-delusion. And now a guest who needs no introduction. No, I would like to be introduced. Our next guest is the man that doesn't love his children. We have a caller on line too with a question for Greg Pallast. It's a uh, Mr. God who wants to know with all the evils, Mr. Pallast, what's your solution? What can we do about it? You know, it's an answer I've given many times, polished by expensive PR consultants. But I can't remember any of the lines I've practiced. I realize there's nothing we can do about it. And the man, not the man who forgot his gloves on the bus, not the man on the line who created the heavens and the earth, not my young bride, nor my cat, nor yours. The line goes dead. The silence suffocates. And a tiny planet fights for the words, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Nice. It's more work to read than to write. It's an interesting thing to think about because when we write our poetry and we generate our work, it's one thing. But then when, when you enter it from the storytelling spoken word point of view, if you will, uh, engaging with it, especially given the story you've already told us about how you did fight to get out. So I think that we have an instinct to go do something 
that makes our lives happier, that makes our lives more abundant, more productive, more generous, and, and more able to care about the people that are around us. I think we all have that drive. And sometimes it gets turned in the direction Steve, Steve got turned in. Somehow poetry allows us all to stay in that sensibility. And even though you are driven to speak for all those who can't speak, it's interesting that you are still speaking for the Greg Palast who couldn't speak as well. So you are everybody in a sense. I can hear that struggle in your yeah, performance I, I still, voice. Well, I'll tell you, that I do feel smothered a lot, even now. But it's a different ghetto that I've been put in. I crawled out of Sun Valley, Pacoima, uh, the smog hole. I'm still ghettoized as a journalist, and this has affected me. In other words, I can tell these stories. A third of a million voters have been challenged in Georgia. I can't get that on the air in the U.S. for love or money. When I went to the jungle, to the rainforest, and met with the indigenous people that were being literally poisoned, murdered, killed by chevrons, top of the BBC nightly news, which is great. It went all over the world, except my own country, where it bounced off the electronic Berlin Wall. So I feel my words get smothered. You know, I mean, compared to others, yeah, you could say I'm lucky. I've had a bunch of bestsellers. I'm in some big outlets, and once in a while, they let me on MSDNC or whatever. But uh, and they used to, but not anymore. Allow me on National Petroleum Radio. If I could have found Steve, I'd said, well, you know what? I could use your brains. The words are going to strike them harder than your bullets. I still feel smothered. And so that frustration comes out in that poem I just read to you. It's our world which can't speak the truth, but it's also obviously very personal to me. Again, the poetry is uncensored by an editor, uncensored by a television executive. It's the full thing. It's an area in which I can actually operate uncensored, which I love. My book, Vulture's Picnic, which is somewhat autobiographical. And by the way, there's a lot of poetry in there. What I did is I took out the enjambments. I sneak it in. You don't actually know that there's several poems in there. I wanted to start the book with two words. The second word is God, but the first word is a, a word we can't use on community radio, as you say. Mm-hmm. Penguin said they're not going to publish it unless I take out those words. I actually got several ministers to write them. <laughs> Believe it or not, a rabbi, a minister, a psychologist, a professor, all saying that what Greg has written is actually a very religious book. And you can't get to the heart of things unless you doubt this system. So yeah, so I still get censored even in my books. And you know, in poetry, unlike a lot of the of the art forms. Poetry has never been commercialized at the level the other art forms have been. So it, there's, it's a bit more open in terms of allowance. What I think happens is that this censorship that you feel around your journalistic work is indeed in place in the world for sure. And, and it is with poetry. So for example, you can't say certain words on a community radio station. You can say almost anything you want to on a podcast. So in a sense, in this poetic arena, censorship forces us as poets to craft the message so that it gets through the filters. Unlike a lot of messages that can get stopped, it's possible to 
put the poetry through those filters and there's so many different ways of getting it out. And there's some kind of magic about poetry that allows it to be heard under almost any circumstances. I only knew two poets who trained me how to write. One was uh, Allen Ginsberg, the other was my mailman, Charles Bukowski. You know, Ginsburg became internationally famous. He's one of the only poets who's ever been on the cover of Time magazine. He was 29 years old. Here he's on the cover of Time magazine because, because he was arrested for obscenity for his poem, Howl, put out by City Lights Books, because he'd used the word mother lover in the poem. Williams, his, I told you William Carlos Williams was his pediatrician and mentor, said, would you take that word out? And Ginsburg actually presciently said, I'm leaving it in because you know what? Maybe I'll get arrested and that will bring some attention to it. And boy, did it worldwide. The reason Allen Ginsberg became the most successful, that is the most read, and certainly most financially successful poet of our time, the last century, was that because of scandal. Same with Ulysses. We wouldn't have known about that wonderful book if it hadn't been banned. Or, In fact, there's a lot of terrible artists who become famous because they've been banned from scandal and they don't deserve it. But so scandal can be very helpful. It's only when we say something naughty or do something naughty that uh, poetry gets any notice. Naughty also can be interpreted as pushing the limits and using language that you can't use on community radio. All of that language, when used artistically, has great power. So none of it is really vulgar when it's placed properly. And all of it can be just horrible and terrible and off tone if it's placed in the wrong way. How do you figure out how to use all of this language and build your own coding into it so that it rings in someone else's psychology, in someone else's imagination and affects them? So why don't you close us out with one more poem, Mr. Pallast? This is called Cruel and Silent on the Phone. Larry, please. I don't believe in God. I believe in you and the kids. I don't want to die. Did, did, did Liddy call? Why can't she pick up the phone and call? Don't argue about the tests. I don't need tests. And that's when his head popped off and floated over the hospital air conditioners and the hospital parking lot like a grinning balloon. He was 200 years old again. This can't be the last time. I'm scared. I'm scared of Bernstein, that schmuck. And, and Liddy doesn't back me up. Why isn't she on my side? What the hell was he doing in a client's rental car in Utah? He was just too old for this crap. He knew one thing. He'd come to build his mother's tomb. Larry stood over the bed, holding a, a sword over her head. She was only two minutes old now, tiny and red, in the hospital gown meant for a, a grown woman, a grown and old dying woman. Everyone, said Lydia, 11,000 miles away, everyone, said Lydia to the bottle, gets one last phone call. What's the last bill I'll pay before I die? What'll be my very last car? A Cadillac, that's what. A monster mother Mercedes, that's what, mister. Every day, in every way, I'm getting a wee bit better. Every day, in every way, I'm getting a wee bit better. Newborn and fresh, impotent and insomniac, he learned the lessons of Vietnam and was ready to make a buck. The sword came down 
Larry's bride cradled the severed bleeding phone cord in her arms and sang a lullaby. We're all scared of Bernstein. I only wish on you a daughter who treats you like you treat me. And just as she said it, a daughter just like her was born out of her ear, born to be cruel and silent on the phone. Thank you, Greg Pallas, for that poem. I've really enjoyed all of the stuff that you you put out in your work and and your your poetry and what I like about it what I like about it now like I've always enjoyed it you come to it with doubt you don't come to it with certainty you are certain when you get in it and you're confident with your work and yet there's a part of you that is still just a little bit not sure and within that uncertainty lies some kind of potency some sort wow, of that power. that's re- that is ridiculously perceptive because i just realized something i know how i'm going to begin and i know i'm going to end and i just have to go from there to there right but you know what i've never written a poem ever knowing how it would end it's a very different journey mm-hmm. i don't want to be corny about it but it's a really really different way where you let your mind and your soul or something take over the book i consider actually a secret poem called vulture's picnic unlike my other writings i said i didn't write this book i wrote it down and i think that's the difference between the prose and the poetry the prose you know what you're writing the poetry if you know what you're writing don't do it Man, that is great advice because I do think that that's really, really true. And I've been thinking a lot about the, the rational mind and the imaginative mind. And I always say to people, stay in your rational mind because if you get out of it, you'll just go off and never come back. But if you stay in your rational mind and let your imaginative, soulful mind lead the dance, it may know the end of the poem, but we don't sense that end until that imaginative dance comes to a conclusion and gives it to us, then we recognize it. Oh my gosh, there's the end of the piece. I had no idea what the angel was going to do to me. <laughs> you, you don't know what the angel will do or the muse or for that matter, the Duende. Well, they're, they're playing with us. I'm enjoying these conversations because it's very different also because just like the poetry, if I'm on MSNBC, I know exactly what's going to happen and it's going to happen in hundred and. 40 seconds. But here, I don't know. This show runs like an epic poem. I never come on this show with a question prepared. I have never done that. I wait until I connect with the person and pick up the conversation where we left it off. Like you and I have been having a conversation for years. So I just pick up where we left off before. And if it's a brand new person, I find an easy place to enter. Sometimes I'll enter by asking someone about what their relationship to color is or what their relationship is to silence. Simple little questions like that that really aren't simple at all. Then start this fabulous journey through a beautiful woodland, if you will. We roam without, without a map and 
we find the paths that are there and they take us to the other side of the wilderness, which is no longer wild or it still maybe is wild, but it's no longer as unfamiliar a wilderness as it was when we embarked. So Greg, I really have always enjoyed just the way you, you do all of this work. And it's been such a pleasure to have you come back and be here a second time. I really, really do appreciate it. And it's always fun to check in and see what the political climate's like out there in the field and to see what the uh, poetic climate is like inside your head. So thanks so much for being on Twice Five Miles Radio. I really do appreciate it. It's a thrill. It's a challenge. And it's dangerous. And I love it. <laughs> All right. So there you go, my friends. That was Greg Pallast. I've known Greg for many years, as I said on this interview. I met Greg in the mid-90s during a poetry festival in Asheville, North Carolina. It was held on the campus of UNCA, and it was produced by Poetry Alive. And Alan Wolf, who still lives in Asheville, and has made his living for many years as a young adult author working for Candlewick Press. Alan was the one who organized that festival, and Alan invited poets to come from all walks of life. There were slam poets there, page poets, people who were interested in poetry from the Asheville community, and further afield from other communities as well. So Greg Pallast showed up at that festival, and Greg already was a seasoned journalist and a poet. In fact, as he mentioned in this interview, he's been a poet much longer than he's been a journalist. So like so many other people who attended the festival, Greg was there to soak up the poetry, get to know people, hang out, connect, maybe learn a few things about what he could do in his world of writing poetry and being a poet. If you've listened to this show before, you know I spend a fair amount of time talking about poetry, probably because it's been something that's been in my life for a long time, and and because of poetry, I've had lots of opportunities to think about things in what you might call poetic ways, which I've come to think is how most people process the world. They may not say they're thinking poetically. You may not say you're thinking poetically, or maybe you might claim that you think poetically all the time. Either way, if you pull back for a moment and just stop and think about how you process all the information you encounter every day, the simple things like tying your shoes or deciding which outfit to wear or maybe deciding you're going to wash your car, or interact with social media, post an Instagram picture or an Instagram story, or maybe say something on Facebook. Anything that is coming and going in your life requires an entire system of processing, almost like some huge computer is making calculations, many calculations, second by second. And as you make those calculations, your imaginative mind and your rational mind dance together and organize the entire proposition so that it usually works pretty well. Sometimes you forget to turn the stove off or you leave your keys behind or you lose this or that and things get a little befuddled and confused. And yet even in those moments, 
things eventually right themselves or sort themselves out and the picture becomes clear again. I mean, coming back to Greg Pallast and some of the stories he told us during this interview, his classmate Steve, who ended up being a shooter in Las Vegas, is a good example of how Greg has allowed his poetic thinking to help him sort out what really is something that's almost impossible to work through. And the way his poetic thinking has allowed him to do it is that he has been able to process Steve as an individual fully guilty of a horrid crime and also process Steve as an example, a metaphor, a symbol of a whole neighborhood where people struggle and suffer and don't have the chances that other people have to get out and do the things that they were born to do. might be fair to say that when people face these very, very tough circumstances that squelch them, turn them around, spin them out, and put them in places where they will never be able to get up the hill, as Greg said, might be fair to say that these circumstances have squelched many and denied people the opportunity to really just sit back, observe, and enjoy life and take in the the beauty around them. So I'm talking about this poetic disposition, the, the poetic sensibilities, because I like the idea of poetic thinking or poetic sensibility as a as, as something that we all have, we all can can share. We were all born with say species imperative. It helps us stay alive. It helps us improve our lives. It allows us to to enjoy the humor that that comes along. And hopefully, when you allow yourself to think more poetically, you get a sharper view of things or a deeper understanding of how you'd like to go about life doesn't necessarily mean you have to write any of it down. It does mean, however, if you appreciate what you already have and your ability to see the world through a lens that sometimes, if not all the time, allows a bit of beauty to flow through, then more power to you and and really more power to those around you as well. And of course, as I've said so often on this show, poetry is part of the beauty of language. It's part of storytelling. It's part of how we communicate. That's what Greg said he was trying to do in his book, Vulture's Picnic. It's a book, he says, and yet he's hidden a lot of poetry in there trying to get his message across, say something he feels like is important to say, so he can get somebody else to listen to it and maybe understand his point of view and maybe revise their point of view. It's hard to say, but people do have lots of different points of view. And on that note, what I'd like to do now is read a poem written by a poet named Kenneth Fearing. And the poem is titled, The End of a Seer's Convention. And the seers are wizards. They're able to see the future, read cards, make all kinds of predictions about what's to come, read minds, etc., etc. And, of course, the thing that's interesting about this piece, and it touches on what Greg was talking about and a bit of what I'm talking about in terms of how we see things, what's interesting about it is that each one of the seers has an opinion about how things should be done. And they're basically arguing and not getting anywhere in their arguments which is a bit of what's going on today. 
So I'd like to offer you this as we close out the hour. It's titled End of a Sears Convention, and it was written by Kenneth Fearing. It has seven wizards in it and one narrator, so here we go. We were walking and talking on the roof of the world in an age that seemed at that time an extremely modern age, considering a merger last on the agenda of the seven great leagues that held the seven true keys to the seven ultimate spheres of all moral, financial, and occult life. I foresee a day, said one of the delegates, an astroanalyst from Idaho, when men will fly through the air and talk across space. They will sail in ships that float beneath the water. They will emanate shadows of themselves upon a screen, and the shadows will move and talk and seem as though real. Very interesting indeed, declared a gypsy delegate. But I should like to ask, as a simple reader of tea leaves and palms, how does this combat the growing and widespread evil of the police? The astrologer shrugged, and an accidental meteor fell from his robes and smoldered on the floor. In addition, he said, I foresee a war, and a victory after that one, and after the victory, a war again. Trite, was the comment of a crystal gazer from Miami Beach. Any damn fool, any damn time can visualize wars and more wars and famines and plagues. The real question is how to seize power from entrenched and organized men of common sense. I foresee a day, said the Idaho astrologer, when human beings will live on top of flagpoles and dance at some profit for weeks or months without any rest, and some will die very happily of eating watermelons and nails and cherry pies. Why, said a bored numerologist reaching for his hat, can't these stargazers keep their feet upon the ground? Even if it's true, said a Bombay illusionist, it's not like the rope trick, altogether practical. And furthermore, and finally, shouted the astrologer, with comets and half-moons dropping from his pockets and his agitated sleeves. I prophesy an age of triumph for laziness and sleep and dreams and utter peace. I can see couples walking through the public parks in love, and those who do not are wanted by the sheriff. I see men fishing beside quiet streams, and those who do not 
are pursued by collectors and plastered with liens. This does not tell us how to fight against skepticism, muttered a puzzled mesmerist, groping for the door. I think, agreed a lady who interpreted the cards, that we are all inclined to accept too much on faith. <coughs> a sprinkle of rain, or dragon's blood, or a handful of cinders, fell on the small black umbrellas they raised against the sky. And that, my friends, was Kenneth Faring's The End of a Sears Convention, which brings us around to the end of this show. I hope we can agree more than those wizards did, walking and talking on the roof of the world. So thank you ever so much for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVM-LP Asheville 103.7, streaming online globally, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, out of Taos, New Mexico, Cultural Energy Radio. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, if you're interested in any of Walter's music. You can always reach out to me at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. And if you're interested in improving your writing skills, consider zooming into my writing group, which I host with Allegra Houston every Saturday morning at noon Eastern time. It's a doors open policy. Anybody who comes will be more than welcome to join us. We write for an hour. You can find all about that at imaginativestorm.com. Imaginativestorm.com. Thank you, Davine Dial, for all you do for the radio station, WPVMFM.org. We really do appreciate it. And for all of you listening, I really appreciate that as well. Thank you ever so much for tuning in. And I hope you do tune in again next time. Until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.